Hi, I'm Sam Fesich from the EduMagic Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm talking with Catherine Brewster Howison. She is the author of Mayflower Chronicles, The Tale of Two Cultures. Catherine is a descendant of a family on the Mayflower, and, and by the way, that's where the Brewster name comes from, and she had Native Americans who are descendants from the time to help with the completion of the book. What a cool thing. You're going to love this book. Great read. Oh, by, 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 by the way, it would be so cool if you are not a follower or a subscriber. If you uh, did that for me, could you do that? That'd be so cool. As well as, how about sharing it with your friends, your colleagues, and family? Yeah, now that's what I'm talking about. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Boone Titanium Rings, found on the web at boonrings.com, is an affiliate partner of Teaching Learning Leading K-12. And I'm also a customer. I have this really cool ring that's got these carved pistons and, and stars in it. I love it. They make rings of titanium that are carved, laser cut, and engraved, as well as they have inlays of many types of materials like meteorite, acrylic, wood, carbon fiber, and so many other types. They also have special collections that are incredible designs. One of the top sellers are the Gamer Rings, the Stealth Series, and the Black Zirconium. As a note, they also make earrings, pendants, cufflinks, and for you musicians, they make cool trumpet mouthpieces. Love it. Go to boonrings.com and at checkout, use my code. Capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, number 12, and you'll get 10% off your purchase. So go check them out. I love my ring, and I know that you will love yours. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Catherine Brewster Howeisen is a professional journalist. She's the author of fiction and nonfiction books, as well as articles in faith-based and popular culture magazines, print and online. Catherine is a church capital campaign consultant and a former executive director of a nonprofit. She also is a retired Lutheran pastor. She notes that in her childhood, her brothers nicknamed her Chatty Kathy. She likes to talk, and this has done well for her as she has spoken at conferences, retreats, workshops, and classes, and would be happy to schedule a talk with your group or organization. Today, we're going to focus on her book, Mayflower Chronicles, The Tale of Two Cultures. Catherine, thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Thank you, and hello, and it is my pleasure to be with you. I've been looking forward to this for some time. Well, I've been too, and I uh, uh, appreciate you being patient and uh, and joining me now and all this this stuff this is cool and uh, you got a great book and I can't wait to get into it uh, but before we start talking about your book the Mayflower Chronicles you're a retired Lutheran pastor it's, uh, talk a little bit about what was something that you really liked when you worked with your congregation I, I like working with the people I like forming a team of people and then accomplishing something um, I, I like seeing people come together and do what they initially thought was impossible, uh, but when enough people got involved and wanted something bad enough, it happened, and it, I've seen that happen over and over and over again. It's really exciting. That's cool. That's cool. I, I, I just thought that was a neat part, and I, I could probably make the whole podcast just about you talking a little bit about what you used to do, but we, we got a book we're going to talk about, so that's neat. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for talking about that. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about you as a professional journalist, which I also think is cool. Uh, uh, have you always had a flair for writing or did it develop over time as you saw you know, opportunities uh, to share your thoughts and ideas? 
Well, my mother was a librarian, so I was literally raised partially in libraries, going to visit mom at work and waiting for her to get off work. And uh, I come from a family of readers. Our house was full of books, so I always loved reading. I was the only girl on the street that I grew up on as a teenager, so I spent a lot of my time reading because I didn't have any way to get to my friend's house until some adult wanted to take me there. And, and I've just always been in love with words. I always got the best grades on papers and essays and things like that for school. And I know this sounds weird, but I always prefer essay tests over any other kind of test because I felt like I had more flexibility to really answer the question or express myself. So, yeah, it, it goes back a long way. That's awesome. And just a note, I, I much prefer essay as well. <laughs> so. Yeah. Okay. When the truth, on the true false test, it's like, well, I can see some truth in that, but not completely. And on the false test, well, it's not completely false. And, and I overthink it. So, yeah. I know that feeling well. So that's, yeah. that's cool. That's, now that's neat uh, growing up in a library because, you know, I'm a, I'm a former history teacher and I have a couple of degrees in history. And, uh, and uh, I've just always uh, been fascinated by, uh, my history, especially of this country. And, uh, it just, uh, it's cool talk, I mean, to be raised in a library, which is that, I mean, with a mom as a librarian is a really cool thing to me. So yeah, yeah. it was a real gift to me. Yes. That's awesome. I, you know, let's start talking about your book, Mayflower Chronicles, the tale of two cultures by first explaining something in your family tree. Who were the Brewsters? Well, William Brewster is known in history as Elder Brewster, which is a technical term for a position in the church. He was part of the nonconformist movement in England. There were two of those. There were the separatists, uh, and then there were the Puritans. The separatists thought there was no hope for this. They needed to go back to the first century and do a redo. The Puritans thought they could purify the church if they stayed around long enough. So when the separatist movement started, uh, um, Brewster ended up being one of the leaders in it. He was never ordained as a pastor, so he functioned basically. Different denominations would give them different titles. Some churches might call him a deacon. Some might call him a lay minister. Um, but he was one of the leaders of the movement. And when they immigrated to the United States, well, wasn't the United States then, but to North America, um, their main pastor stayed behind. And so by default, he became the functional pastor of the group as well. And Mary was his wife, so she came along for the voyage. That's cool. They uh, to know that much because uh, at my no, my tree only goes so far before it becomes so convoluted. You have not 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 really quite sure where everybody was or went or um, yeah. disappeared. Well, to. My mother was a reference librarian, and she did a lot of this research. So I, I had a place to start. I didn't have to start from ground zero. That's awesome. <laughs> That's yeah. really cool. So just. Uh, being a pastor in the Lutheran church, did any of that kind of influence your research or anything like that, or just your knowledge of the well, times? It, it did, because um, being a Lutheran pastor, we learned a lot about Martin Luther and the Reformation and some of the early reformers. And so I had that lens to look through when I was studying what was going on in England and what the nonconformist movement was about and what the established Church of England was about. So, yes, that uh, theological training and background proved very helpful in doing the research and writing the story. That's awesome. That's, I, I can only imagine because I can imagine, you know, having gone through the theological training and so forth and, and getting, because of being with the Lutheran Church, that's uh, even more so you're going to get... Uh, I would say some um, significant. Uh... Well, and actually, there's quite a few parallels between Martin Luther and William Brewster. Um, they both were pretty radical for their time. They both were trying to clean up the church initially. 
uh, and they both got in trouble with the printing press and they both went into hiding for a long period of time. Wow. That's, that's cool. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. maybe not so cool to them at the time. That's what a neat historical yeah. comparison though. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for sharing that. I like that. I, wait, you got to be, this is the historian in me is like going, this is cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as we start, your, as we're talking about your book, we got to, I got to point this out. You have an interesting forward to the book. Uh, could you explain to the reader what they'll find there? Yes, it was written by the descendants of a fellow in history known as Massasoit Usamegwin. He was the grand leader of many Native American tribes or nations uh, in the Massachusetts, New England area. Uh, he came calling on the separatists, the pilgrims, uh, to negotiate a treaty when they first arrived. And as I was writing the book, I knew about him because I'd done my research, but as I was uh, getting ready to publish the book, I really wanted another pair of Native American eyes to see the manuscript. I had uh, hired a Native American editor to do some editing for me, but I wanted somebody else to see the whole manuscript before it was published. And so a long story through Beth Flame, actually, that, that you know, um, I was introduced to the descendants of that man. And so with some fear and trepidation, I handed the manuscript over them to review and crossed my fingers that they wouldn't beg me to please not publish it or to say you have no right as a person who's not one of us to write this. But instead, they said, we like it. They made a few minor changes. They gave me some information I had not yet found on my own. And then I asked them to write the forward, and they agreed to. That's really cool. That's a, what a neat, uh, and, and actually to take those extra steps that you, you took. So, cause that takes more time. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So all of this you're mentioning, um, we've talked in and around and briefly mentioned the word, um, talk a little bit about the research that you did to help the conversations and the, and the story come alive that you create in your book. It unfolded over a, a period of several years. I had uh, made three or four trips to New England to a place that I knew as Plymouth Plantation and has since been renamed as Plymouth Patuxet or Patuxet Plymouth and Pilgrim Hall in Plymouth uh, to get the history from their perspective. I interviewed some people in both places. Um, I had a chance to go to England. I, I love England. Uh, I had a chance to go to England a couple of times. So I went to Scrooby up in Northern England near York. Uh, which is where the story starts, really. And then Cambridge, uh, where William Brewster went to school for a brief period of time. And London, uh, just because you can't go to England and not go to London. Uh, so not to do the research so much, is just kind of soak up the ambiance of that city. But it played a part in William's life. And then I uh, had a chance to go to uh, Holland, uh, specifically to Leiden, which is where they were in exile for approximately a decade. So I went to a lot of places. I took a lot of pictures. I went to museums. I interviewed people. I read books by historians, by university professors, Native American authors. Uh, and I, you know, after a while, the problem is not that you can't find the information, it's that you're finding too much. And every little bit of information is fascinating. And then you dig into that, and then you're down another trail. And so at some point, you have to say, stop. <laughs> I have to settle for what I already know because otherwise it'd be another seven or eight or nine years before the book would get written. Just as a note, what you're talking about there is the, the thing that I can only imagine. It's like, I, I, but I got all this other information. How, should I stop here or should I keep going? I mean, it's like, Fine. and, and then there'd be some voice saying, is it, 
really needed for this story <laughs> or something like that. I, I just can't imagine what that part's like. Right. At some point it's like, okay, this is really interesting, but it's not really germane to the story. So <laughs> put it aside. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I can only imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I need to put a plug in for uh, one of the authors that I re- relied on heavily. Her name is Sue Allen. She's a British author. She's a professional genealogist and historian, and she has devoted most of her adult life to doing the really tedious uh, in the archives, going through church records, going through um, the the di- titles and deeds and that sort of thing, uh, to do the genealogy on many of the people who sailed on the Mayflower. Uh, so I really owe a debt of gratitude to her for her really incredible research. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. That's that's cool because I can only imagine. I mean, the number of uh, um, in, the amount of information that's out there that uh, you know you need that that person to be able who has gone through and identified who the people are and some of their life histories and things like that. So you didn't have to, <laughs> or right. Have to and there's another time. American um, genealogist and his name is Caleb uh, Johnson. He's, he maintains a website called mayflowerhistory.com. I, I went to that all the time just to real quickly check a date uh, or a timeline or make sure I had somebody's name spelled right, that sort of thing. Uh, so he and Sue actually work together, even though one's in the United States and one's in England. And th- they really have done a tremendous amount of research for anybody who's interested in this topic. That's excellent. Uh, so I got to ask you to, you know, lots of people know some of the stuff in and around, which you address some of that in, in your, in your the beginning of your book and such, but well, can you go to, over just a little bit? What was happening in England at the time that uh, sent the Mayflower across the ocean? A lot of religious tug of wars. Um, whether in that day and era, people did not choose their religion; their monarch chose it for them, and everybody was expected to be in a church of some sort or other, and were literally fine if they had not attend. So there was this tug of war going on, and so King Henry the Eighth. Everybody knows that story, I think. He um, wanted a divorce because his first wife, who ironically was the daughter of King Ferdinand and Isabella, who financed Christopher Columbus's voyage, that was his first wife. She was not producing any male heirs, and so he needed a divorce, and the Pope said, you can't have one, and King Henry said, you can't tell me what to do. So in 1534, he established the established Church of England, is how they refer to it in their era today, as the Anglican Church, or the Church of England. And... Um, he all he did basically was get rid of the pope and put himself in in as the head of the church. He went through a, some kind of a political process to have himself appointed as the grand governor of the established Church of England, which is in place to the present day. If you travel in Canada or Australia or England uh, in any public building, you will see Queen Elizabeth II as the head of the established Church of England. So he uh, he had. He kept. He needed a male heir. He finally got one, but it was a very sickly little boy, and he died quickly. So they were desperate for an heir. They named his first daughter Mary, daughter of Catherine of Aragon, who was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella. Um, she became known as Bloody Mary because she had been married briefly to a Catholic uh, and wanted the country to go back to Catholicism and martyred some 300 people who didn't agree with her. She mercifully died of probably the flu or influenza or pneumonia or something after a fairly short reign. 
they still didn't have a male heir. So uh, then they went to uh, her half-sister, Queen Elizabeth, who liked the idea of being the head of the established Church of England. And she was pretty tolerant, though. As long as you um, didn't cause her any trouble, she wouldn't cause you any trouble on the religious front. But she had a cousin, the other Mary, Mary Queen of Scots, who had also been married to a, a, into a royal Catholic family. One of Mary's was married to somebody in Spain and one was married to somebody in France. Without my crib notes in front of me, I don't want to say which one married which monarch, but they were both Catholic. Uh, so Mary, Queen of Scots, gave birth to King James, the future King James of England. And then spent most of her life uh, imprisoned in castles all over Europe because she kept smuggling in Catholic priests to lead worship services in England. She was determined England would return to Catholicism, and Queen Elizabeth was determined it would not. And so finally what happened was Queen Elizabeth's Privy Council said, uh, that queen has to go. She's she's making attempts on your life. You are not safe as long as she's alive. And then we had the beheading of Mary, Queen of Scots. Most people are probably familiar with that story. So that what was going on in, in uh, Europe, all over Europe. Um, there was a civil war between Protestantism and um, Catholicism. And the nonconformists got caught up in it because they didn't think the established church had gone far enough. And so they considered it really Catholic with a monarch instead of a pope, and they didn't like it. Gotcha. Appreciate it. Cause that's, you know, there's a reason why they chose to, I mean, cause I just cannot imagine ma- making that trip on that boat. <laughs> I cannot either. I'm so grateful that my ancestors made it and I didn't. Yeah. yeah. They, they had to leave England. Um, so William Brewster uh, was the, the bailiff, uh, the postmaster manager of a place called Scrooby Manor, which was on the North road that connected London to Scotland. And so it was a very important place. It was very tiny, but it was very important. And so when the um, Puritans who were trying to purify the church had a meeting with King James after King Queen Elizabeth died, King James came to the throne. They called a meeting in 1604 with their great ideas about how they were going to purify the church. And King James basically said, I'm happy where things are, and you'll either comply with my ways or you won't have a pulpit. So he removed some 300 clergy from their pulpits. And one of them was the pastor of the church that William Brewster had kind of taken a fancy to. So he just invited them all to worship at the manor, which was the property of the Bishop of York, 50 miles away. It was a matter of time until they were found out. And there was a very real threat. They would have all been executed. They had already um, beheaded or hung a variety of nonconformist people. So their lives literally were in danger. So they hightailed it over to Holland uh, with Amsterdam first and then Leiden because it was a much more tolerant country. That's, that's just a, just amazing. And because, you know, the, the trip, when they end up making the trip, I mean, they're going to have to deal with, I mean, I, you know, in the 1600s, medical care is questionable <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, but yes. then to be on a boat and dealing with, you know, needing to have fr- all kinds of stuff. So, the thing that, that shocked me the most in my research was, and three of those women were pregnant. Wow. And they all delivered before they got off of the ship. Wow. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hi, hi, hi. Um, I know. <laughs> that's just amazing. So, so one of the things now, because what happens is when they do come to the, um, this land, the, uh, there are people here. And uh, one of the things they run into is uh, – there's something called the Great Dying. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, so they were not the first Europeans to come over here. There had been people coming over really for a long time. Uh, Columbus's trip was 1492, and this is 1620. So they've been going on for a long time. But they were coming to trade, and uh, they so two things happened. They introduced these lethal diseases. One theory is smallpox. We're not really sure, but whatever it was, they had no protection against it, and it made what we've been through with COVID look like uh, a mild case of, of, of cold because 70% of them died in the period of a couple of years shortly before the Mayflower showed up. 16, um, 18, 16, 19 time frame. But the other thing that happened was a couple of the people who came to trade thought it would be uh, profitable to take some of the Native Americans back to Europe to sell uh, as slaves. And so they kidnapped a variety, about 27 young men, took them over to Spain. Three ironically Catholic friars bought the freedom of a few of them. One of them, a man that history knows as Tisquantum or Squanto, we don't know how, but we do know that he made it to London, where he was sort of a like a house servant. He wasn't really a slave, but he didn't speak the language. He had no family. He had no connections. He was totally a very young man in his early 20s, totally on his own. So he was living with this family, learned English. And um, I think he probably initiated this deal that, hey, you could use me. I, I speak Algonquin and, and English now. So I would be very handy in helping you with your trade deal. So he got to come back home found out that the place that he had called home was totally gone uh, because the plague had come through and the few people who didn't die from the plague had moved out of the area, which happens to be where the pilgrims decided to establish their Plymouth plantation. It's on the site of the Native American land that was wiped out by the uh, plague. And, and that's amazing because, it, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, one of the parts in your book that, uh, you know, you referred to people that had always been coming here and I, I, my imagination runs wild with that section of your book where it talks about them watching from the shoreline. Yes. And, uh, yeah. Well, when, when they saw that they were showing up with women and children and building supplies and planting a garden, um, they figured that, well, they're not leaving. We, right. you know, we need to be proactive here. And so the Massasoit, um, who's to make one, he knew they were there. He had not met them before. He lived some distance away from there, but he had, he had people and his people were giving him reports. Uh, so he sent another a native who spoke some English, uh, Samosot, first to greet these people in the spring of 1621 when they were planting their garden. And then Samosot um, went back and said, well, well okay, you know, here's who they are and what they're up to. Uh, then uh, at that point, just quantum got involved because he spoke much better English and he really was the translator between the two cultures. But yeah, so uh, Massasoit showed up one afternoon with 60 or so of his men. They, they did a very complicated um now, prisoner exchange is not the right word for it. Kind of, um, well, you watch you watch six of mine to make sure that you know I'm not trying to take advantage of you, and I need one of yours. Uh, and so they had that exchange, and then they spent the afternoon working out the treaty, which the people that wrote the forward to my book when I was interviewing them, they are very proud to tell me it lasted 50 years. Uh, not perfectly. There were tensions between the natives and and the separatists or the English settlers, but it lasted mostly uh, because uh, they were mutually desperate. And then as the first generation of leaders got older, most of them died of natural causes. Um, life expectancy back then was not nearly what it is today, but some of them lived into their 60s and 70s. But as they got older and died off and more and more English ships kept coming, as one man I interviewed said, we didn't have a problem with the Mayflower. 
we had them outnumbered, even though we had been greatly diminished by the great dying. We had them way outnumbered. All we had to do was wait, and they would have starved to death, and you'd never known they were ever here. The problem was all the other ships that kept coming. There was a mass migration out of England into the New England area in the 1620s, 30s, and 40s, something like 10% of the English people in the town of Boston uh, emigrated to uh, the Boston uh, Plymouth area over those next few decades. So that's just ama- amazing because it, you know, just to start off with a small group. And like you said, in the earlier years, it's trading and they're looking for that going back and forth. But then as it becomes a, a place to escape to in many of yeah. their minds, I mean, it, obviously many of them were thinking about business and stuff, but a lot of them were, it's just a place to go away from whatever that world is. And one of the big problems was the English were used to titles and, and land and ownership. And although most of them did not own land, uh, but they wanted to, uh, but the Native Americans had no concept that you could own the land any more than you could own the air that we breathe. It was a natural resource that all people needed access to. So the Native population thought they're just being good human beings and saying, well, of course you can use our forest and, and fish in our rivers and, and uh, plant your gardens in that field over there. Uh, they had no sense that they were selling their land. And so that's what a lot of the disputes became about as the population kept getting larger and larger and larger. And that, that's interesting too, because, you know, I mean, even, you know, the title of your book is Mayfla- Mayflower Chronicles, uh, Tale of Two Cultures. And I, I mean, do you think that the, I mean, it, with the two cultures coming together, there's a lot of different beliefs there. And I would think yes. that that automatically set them to eventually have some issues with each other. They, they did. Well, one of them is funny. So the English men, because they were all men who were doing any of the leadership roles, uh, in the English culture in that day, a man owned the property. If a woman got married, even if she'd inherited land or, or wealth from some source, it became her husband's property. Uh, so the English system, the men were the head and the women were, you know, produce the next generation and take care of things. In the Native community, at least in the tribes in that part of, of North America, the women managed the land because the land gives birth. And the men did things like hunt and go to war if necessary and chop down trees to build things. Um, so the English would come to the native men to say, negotiate that we want to use that property. And the men would say, well, you have to go talk to the women. And it's like, well, we don't do business with women. <laughs> we need to talk to you. Who's in charge here? That's she funny. is. <laughs> so it was a huge cultural issue. Right off the bat. <laughs> right off, yeah. Right yeah. off the bat. And it, went, it went downhill from there. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> nice. I, so, Catherine, what do you hope that readers think about after they re- have read a copy of Mayflower Chronicles? I mean, what is it that you think that they, you really want them to step away with? What I always tell people when I'm doing workshops on this is I want you to know that first there was a treaty and they honored it and it worked. And it wasn't until, and it was mostly the English, quit honoring the treaty that it, it also fallen apart. We, by 1675, we were into King Philip's war. King Philip was the son of the Massasoit. They gave him, he gave him an English name to try and 
cement relationships. <clears throat> By 1675, when the war broke out, it that was pretty much the end of uh, life as they had known it for the Native Americans. But before that, for 50 years, there was a treaty and things were working relatively well. So what I would like people to know is we can get along if we decide to get along, but we have to enter into these negotiations in good faith and we have to, to honor our commitments to each other. That's very powerful, very powerful. And, you know, and so with, with, this, with having said that, I've got to ask the question the other direction, which is what's something that, that will stay with you as a result of researching and writing the Mayflower Chronicles, the tale of two cultures. I mean, what's something that as you put this all together over all these years, it's just. Well, a couple of things. So I was doing research in England with one of my granddaughters who has native American heritage in her DNA from her father's side of the family. And it's from the Texas, Mexico area. So it's not the same, but nonetheless, she has Native American heritage. She and I were tooling around, and I have a picture of her in front of the church in Scrooby, England, across the, the road from the manor. And so I have a picture of her, like, I don't know, I guess she'd be 14, 15 generations later, standing where her great, 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 great grandfather once was. Uh, so that's a highlight. And the other is I finally got to meet the Pocono family in Rhode Island last summer. They invited me to come up and meet their tribal council after they wrote the uh, forward to the book. But that was in June of 2020 and COVID. So that didn't happen. But last summer I was in that area again and got a chance to meet them and walk some of the sacred land with them. And that was a pretty special afternoon. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that I can imagine that. And what an interesting thing to think about how many generations back, you know, to have, have her standing where, you know, future family were milling about. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's, that's so cool. Uh, You know, one of the things that, uh, um, you know, we're, we're finishing up here your book's awesome. And uh, the imagery is just amazing. And uh, just to to think about uh, um, all the research of, of putting this information together, you know, one of the things that you also do is you are a speaker. Um, can you talk about that just a minute? I mean, how do listeners engage with you if they wanted you to come talk at their events and, about, and talk about some of the topics you talk about? Well, I have a speaker sheet uh, profile put together that people can download from my website. So that's one thing they can do. I, right now I'm on a kick to talk about the Mayflower and the history of all of this. That's what I'm getting invited to speak about. Most, but I also um, have spoken to groups about um, family life issues. Um, I do a journaling workshop that I teach groups. Uh, I do some speaking about the art of writing, not not so much how to write, but after you've written it, what are you going to do with it? I have a program put together on uh, for older adults on how to capture your life history in a way that's meaningful that you can really pass it on to future generations. Um, because there's a lot of different ways you could go with that. Uh, I've done some women's studies. Um, I've talked about uh, what the Bible really says about marriage and divorce. Um, that's that's one that I'm kind of excited about because there are passages in there for sure. And we have to deal with them. But um, the Bible, or specifically Christ, is not nearly as judgmental against divorce as some pastors would like him to be. So I've put together some material about that. People can reach me through my website, and because my last name is a bit of a challenge, I've, I've simplified it for my website, is how, like, how are you? Wise, like, don't be a wise guy. How wise 
then, like then and there. So three simple words, how, wise, then, and then dot com. I got to tell you, once you told me how to say your name, then I understood the website. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's why that's called that. And I because before that, I, I was like, oh, there's got to be something here that's, that's going to, that you're going to connect me with. And it finally, my brain went, yeah, check that well, out. Okay, that's cool. The other part of that is our ancestors knew a lot. <laughs> I think the whole point of studying history is not just to not repeat the mistakes of the past, but more importantly, I think, is to find those men and women in history who face enormous challenges, either personal or societal, and persevered. Um, they have things to teach us. So the how wise then is sort of a reference to that, too. But it's basically a play on a name that only people who speak German can get without help. That's cool. Just as a note, it's cool that you did both because that's the type of story that I was expecting to hear. And then all of a sudden I went, oh my gosh, it's her name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's cool. That's very cool. Because yeah. you're, you're right. They do have a lot to, to teach us, especially the ones who uh, overcame what, you know, the, the things that they had to deal with at the time that would have pushed them another direction. And uh, mm-hmm. so very cool. Uh, um Catherine, this has been awesome talking with you. I, I, I got to ask, I got to ask you this one last question, which is just something I like to ask my guests. And um, do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it, and what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? I had several teachers that that really impacted me, but probably the one that was the most significant in terms of my writing path has been uh, Mrs. Keller. She was the English teacher and the uh, teacher um, sponsor for the high school newspaper. I was on the staff. And when it came time for the awards in the spring, there were two of us, and uh, she could not decide which one should have the grand honor, so she just made us co-editors, and we both got recognized. And I'm just very impressed with with her as a person as, as well as her skills as an English teacher. Excellent. Thank you so much. I, and, you know, I'll put in the show notes the, the link to your website and uh, uh, as well as uh, some of the places where they can pick up the book. And uh, do okay. I remember right that you have like the name of a, a smaller book, independent book? Um, the book is published by Green Writers Press. Is that what you're getting at? Yes, yes. Yeah, um, Green Writers Press out of Vermont. So mm-hmm. I didn't know if you wanted to give them a shout out or not. That's why yeah, I asked. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, Didi Cummins is the owner and manager and pretty much sole proprietor of Green Writers Press. Her focus is on what's called green because she's really into environmental care and concern. And so she likes to write about those topics or she likes to publish books about those topics. But even books that are on a different subject, such as Mayflower Chronicles, uh, she goes to great lengths to be kind to the environment in the use of paper that she chooses and the ink that she uses and, and the printing process that she uses and that sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. Very cool. Yeah. And I, I would like to say for the any teachers who may be listening, um, she, she hired an intern uh, who was assigned to work with me. And what we did during that internship was we took the book into the five sections and we made a seven part study guide out of it. So there's a preview, uh, a preliminary chapter, and then there's one chapter for each of the five sections of the book. And then there's a, a summary chapter. So uh, that's available on my website. If teachers would like kind of like a, a cliff notes version of the book. That's excellent. And it's very powerful too. I like, I like that study guide. I'm glad you you made sure I didn't forget that. That was, uh, yeah. that was cool. That's uh, the teacher in me was like, this is neat. Cause you could definitely help you run the classes and, and have discussions on that and such. Very good. 
So cool. I'll put make make sure they were they're reminded of that in the show notes as well. Good stuff. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for sharing your book, Mayflower Chronicles: The Tale of Two Cultures, with us. Uh, the story is captivating and enlightening. So you have also opened the world of the Poconoka to us, and so thank you so much, and wishing you all the best. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Teaching, learning, leading K twelve is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.